the situations of indigenous peoples is like this. There is people outside in central city, in the capital, who is decided to whom they will give your land without your knowing it, yeah, if you are indigenous peoples. And then one day, one day, you are having breakfast, you are having coffee, you, or you are having tea in the morning, and then you have somebody that you don't know at all came to your village, came to your community and say, this land is belong to me, you have to go away. You have to get out of this community. So that's the general situations facing indigenous peoples in Indonesia. Welcome to the Speaking of Purpose podcast. I'm Sona Kosla, your host and Chief Impact Officer at Benevity. We're a software company based in Calgary, Canada, powering the corporate purpose programs for some of the world's most iconic companies. As we make our way through our own reconciliation journey, this season, we're highlighting Indigenous stories, history, perspectives, and ways of knowing. In our last episode, we spoke with Melissa Nelson, an Indigenous scholar based in Arizona on Turtle Island, more commonly known as North America. She beautifully shed light on the impacts of settlement and colonization on the Indigenous people who first inhabited this land. For this episode, we decided to take a wider and more global lens to the landscape of Indigenous history and culture. As we began our journey, we came across some interesting stats. According to the International Labour Organization, Indigenous peoples make up the largest minority in the world, at almost 6.2% of the global population. And the International Funders for Indigenous Peoples says that traditional Indigenous territories cover up to 24% of the world's land surface and contain 80% of the Earth's global biodiversity priority areas. No matter the size or location, we cannot afford to ignore the perspectives and knowledge and rights of Indigenous peoples anymore. And we cannot continue seeing their land as solely a source of resources and wealth. Ruka is the Secretary General of the Alliance of Indigenous Peoples of the Archipelago. She shocked us with stories of the experiences of Indigenous peoples in Indonesia. Our conversation with Ruka highlighted just how far we have to go when it comes to truth, justice, and an appreciation for the need and the right to self-determination for Indigenous communities. She also spoke about the spirit of cooperation that must be embraced if we are to live on this planet together for generations to come. We took a hard and honest look at the relationship between Indigenous peoples, government, media, and corporations. It's not hard to understand why there is distrust between these constituents that often erupt in conflict. Let's find out more on this episode of Speaking of Purpose. Manasu Moraka, that's my greeting in Basa Toraja. I am Ruka Sombolingi. I'm currently the Secretary General of Aliansi Masyarakat Adat Nusantara, Indigenous Peoples Alliance of Indonesian Archipelago. I belong to the Toraja Indigenous Peoples in Celebes Island, Sulawesi Island. We are uh, in, the, in the back, in the mountains area of Sulawesi Island and 
us, the Toraja, we are very well known for our uh, elaborated rituals, especially our death rituals. Our funerals are a, one of the things that attracts many people to visit our place. And uh, that's uh, also one of the things, our cultural aspect that we maintain uh, as of today. The Alliance of Indigenous Peoples of the Archipelago, or Aman for short, is an Indonesian indigenous people's human rights and advocacy organization whose members consist of independent indigenous communities from various corners of the country. Ruka is known for her fierceness, her activism, and her longtime dedication to the indigenous rights movement. She has a TEDx talk, and she spoke at the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference. And I've got to say that her laughter and passion are contagious. She has a way of swooping you up and getting to the heart of the truth. And frankly, it's not always easy to hear what she has to say. But Ruka's conviction makes it impossible to ignore her message. Ruka lives in a community that is rich with natural resources, like forests, coal, oil, and minerals. And this makes it attractive to corporations, governments, and land development and building agencies. In Indonesia, uh, we face a lot of problems. The challenges are uh, great and also uh, very challenging. Uh, the situations of indigenous peoples in Indonesia, mainly uh, because of the policy making processes that is not transparent on it's not on the side of indigenous peoples uh, because so far we our rights as indigenous peoples is protected uh, and acknowledged recognized in the indonesian constitutions but uh, until today we still don't have the uh, specific law that allows or provide guidance to the government how to protect and fulfill and recognize and promote our rights as indigenous peoples. Uh, as the result of that is then all the law, all the laws and acts and policies that comes after the Independence Day of Indonesia are used to take away indigenous people's land and resources. So we've been experiencing a loss of land for mining, for forest timber extractions, and for a oil pump plantations, for even for conservations, for electro dams, for a for transmigrations. Transmigration is a very typical in Indonesia where they brought they move people from highly populated uh, islands to less populated uh, indigenous territories. And these are all, yeah, all the land grabbings, uh, all the land loss uh, of indigenous peoples are happening just by, uh, because of government, they make a one-side decision and all without free, prior and informed consent of indigenous peoples. Uh, the situations of indigenous peoples is like this. There, there is people outside in central city, in the capital, who is decided who to whom they will give your land without your knowing it, yeah, if you are indigenous peoples. And then one day, one day, 
you are having breakfast, you are having coffee, you, or you are having tea in the morning, and then you have somebody that you don't know at all came to your village, came to your community and say, this land is belong to me, you have to go away. You have to get out of this community. So that's the general situations facing indigenous peoples in Indonesia. Because all the deals, all the uh, permit uh, granting process is all without our knowledge. And when we stand up for our rights, well, when we say no to uh, them, and that's all the things will, will happen. They will start to intimidate us. They will start to criminalize us. They will start even to do a lot of intimidations and uh, harassment and including killing our leaders. So that is what is happening uh, in general in indigenous uh, people's stories in Indonesia. Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world, spanning three time zones. The country has five major islands, and it's a multi-ethnic country that has a population of more than 271 million people. Indonesia is home to more than 1,300 recognized ethnic groups. As the Secretary General of Amman, Ruka is in constant communication with indigenous peoples throughout the archipelago, keeping community members updated on developments and discussions relevant to them, their forests, and seas. If I'm entirely honest, some of her statements shocked me. In hearing her account, I realized that I'd been naive to the acrimonious relationship that still exists between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous entities in some parts of the world. With a need to know more, I asked Ruka to share some examples of what she meant when she spoke of the horrific injustices being inflicted upon Indigenous peoples in Indonesia. Uh, examples of what is going on in Indonesia, I will uh, tell stories of um, indigenous peoples in Flores Islands. I just visited them last week. One is about the uh, building of uh, a dam. Three communities, they resisted. Yeah, The Rendu uh, communities, and then Lambo communities and Dora communities. Three of them were going to be sunk underwater, uh, and these are all a very productive uh, land for them. Yeah, their area, their uh, territories during the dry season is very dry, and the only place that never uh, affected by the drought, long drought is that area that is going to be submerged underwater when the dam is built. Uh, what they have been, the concerns is they will lose everything. Yeah, we always heard about land is territory is identity for indigenous peoples. And this is the reality of when we say land is identity. What it means, because that land that is going to be submerged when the dam is built is the only land they can farm only because they cannot farm somewhere else and the second one is the only land it's where they're raising their cattle their buffalo their cows and everything yeah so that's the livelihood 
and also the only place for that community where they have the well, the source of water. Um, the, and, and water is human rights, yeah. And then that's the only place where they have, they perform the rituals for the ancestor spirits. That's also full of burial sites of their ancestors. So that plot of land is everything to them, yeah, to the indigenous peoples of, of the Rendu people. Uh, when we pass away, we believe in indigenous uh, people's um, worldview that we never disconnect with the spirits, with the ancestral spirits or people who died before us. Uh, and how do we maintain that relationship with them? We maintain them through rituals. So they will help us as well. So what will happen if you lose the place for rituals to maintain that relationship it's the end yeah uh, the community however they realize we realize that in some other places they need water and they agree to build the dam but not in the current place that is wanted by the government and companies they offer the government and companies to move the location somewhere else. They are willing, they are offering the other part of the community yeah, to replace the very important, very significant um, uh, location for them. They are willing to give the government and company that land that they offer for free free of charge but unfortunately the government don't want to listen to them they ignore the offer completely so that's the situations in indonesia even because indigenous peoples we never oppose development yeah we never what we resist, what we oppose is development that is forced on us and then development that is going to erase us from this earth to make us losing everything. That's kind of development we, we resist because that is not development, that is destructions, the opposite meaning of development. Land is identity. Rukka's wise words reverberated in my body. One doesn't have to be indigenous to understand how our land, our place on earth, our home, shapes our livelihoods, communities, rituals, practices, and identities. Land is not just where we live, it is who we are. I couldn't shake off a bad feeling as Rukka explained how the indigenous peoples of Flores Island we're offering solutions to the government, willing to cooperate and collaborate, but were not heard or heeded. It sounded like the sense of communal problem-solving that's deeply rooted in indigenous culture came to a head with the goals of the government. For the indigenous peoples of Flores Island, this was a matter of spiritual and physical survival. For the government, it's a matter of economic growth. At this point in the conversation, 
Images of standoffs in North America's history flooded my mind. For example, the Oka Crisis, where a land dispute between the Mohawk people and the town of Oka, Quebec, resulted in a violent conflict. Unfortunately, this is happening around the world. From discussions with other Indigenous leaders, it seems that the unique experience of Ruka's people and other communities in the region reflects the broader dilemmas around resource extraction, capitalism, consumerism, environment, and the economy. And it highlights how the intersecting goals of the various players can come to a head and sometimes result in violence. For the first time, I really understood what was at stake for everyone involved. Stories like Ruka's create cognitive dissonance for some of us. In North America, the tone of the conversation has changed over the past decade, especially in Canada, with the publication from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission was formed out of the largest class action lawsuit in Canada, and it worked for six years gathering information until it released a massive report at the end of 2015. The summary report they released made 94 recommendations to repair the relationship between Canadians and Indigenous peoples. Since then, there's been more active discussion and concrete steps taken by corporations and governments in the spirit of truth, reconciliation, reparations, and ultimately, healing. Yes, we still have many critical issues and injustices to tackle and repair. Things like access to clean water, missing women and girls, the legacy of systemic racism, and forced assimilation. But tangible actions like the payment of reparations to Indigenous people in Canada who suffered through the residential school system, and the Pope's recent apology, though not perfect, helped to raise awareness of the issues while making progress towards a mended relationship and a more just future. Hopefully, with these actions, we also learn not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Ruka went on to tell us more about land permits that were issued by the government to companies, often without the affected community's knowledge. Her and her people have witnessed an ongoing, methodical approach to land-grabbing, as she calls it. When Indigenous peoples oppose the use of their land, she says that some companies try to work around this by bribing community leaders, promising free perks, or stirring up internal conflict between affected communities. Here's how it works in Ruka's words. The proceedings normally uh, in Indonesia is any company will go to the government and ask for permit for plantations or for a minings or a for timber extractions. What they will do is, of course, they will go to the central government who is really far in the capital. Yeah, even some of the people, indigenous peoples in Indonesia, uh, has never dreamed of going to the capital because it's so far away. And these are all where the deals, where the permit deals is taking places. Uh, because of the corruptions, many of these permits are obtained with bribery. So, of course, in the beginning, the company already 
spending their money to get the permit. And then with that permit, they can do a lot of things. They can use that permit to get loan from banks. They can already use that permit to, to clear the lands, to cut the trees or the forest that is on, on the surface of the land. And then they will sell it, sell the timber, and they will get money from that. So, because all these things is taking places without indigenous people's involvement, knowing it. Of course, we don't want to lose our land. That's absolutely true. And when we say no, that's where the problem we started. That's where abuses will start it because the company insists that that already their land, that our land is already their land because they have the legal permit from the government and they will do whatever they can do to make sure that they can get that land. They can kick out the indigenous peoples. There are many things they can do. And of course, they already get the permit in the capital. We never know how much do they spend on that. And then they will go to the village, to the indigenous community, and they will try to do what we call elite grabbing, elite captures. They will find the what they see as leaders in the community and try to bribe them, try to hire them as the spokesperson sometimes. Yeah. And then they, that spokesperson will go around convincing other communities, other members of the communities, and telling only the benefit. Yeah. Telling the 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 sweet promises that this is going to happen we will will get the road we will get uh, schools we will get a free free electricity we will get uh, a lot of beautiful things yeah so and then we'll get the money if the elite captures is failed meaning the leaders resist or refuse to be a spokesperson for the company then they will do what we call next is the uh, building, yeah, building the opposition block within indigenous community. But what company will do is they will take advantage on that. For example, the leader from this leading group already refused to be captured. What they will do is they will find the other group that they see can contend or can stand against this opposing leader. What they will do is same thing. They will give money. They will give uh, 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 wrong informations. They will do whatever. And they will ask this new power, these people from this side, to go against this community. And that is the start of what they call internal conflict. And they will continue to nurture that situations and they will continue to take advantage on that situation and they will never get the community to these two competing powers to sit together to talk about their problems and try to find out. The companies have no options. Yeah, because they consider conflict, they consider uh, human rights abuse, they consider 
the elite captures is the cost of productions only. That's the situations, and that's that's for our officials becoming the source of income because of the corruptions. And then with the absence of legal recognitions of indigenous peoples, when we resist, they will. The first thing they will ask is, if this land belong to you, where is the written proof? Do you have certificate for this land? That's the stupid questions. Because first, our ancestor inherit us the land, the resources, and all the knowledge and the cultural practices that comes with that piece of land. They never inherit certificates because the nation state didn't didn't exist before, and even the previous colonizers, as the Japanese in Indonesia, or the Dutch, or the Spanish, or the Portuguese, they they didn't ask for a certificate in the community. Yeah, in the indigenous community who have given up the land, that's where the crisis really hit us as indigenous peoples. And in indigenous community, whom we still have control over our land and we still have uh, live eating from the thing that we produce in our land, that's where we don't get influenced or we don't get affected by the crisis. The crisis Drucker refers to here is the COVID-19 pandemic. And we are generous. If we have leftover from our food, we send away to our neighboring community or to the city because we know they need them. So even though we are already oppressed so much, we are still very generous. We are sharing our food with them. And this is our future. We always think this is the way of life, our future. How do we support each other? And how do we live without exploitations, without deceptions? And that's why it's still very, very difficult for us to say that we can build trust with companies. Because we've never seen any light with them. Hearing these stories, they seem so far away. But they are here. They are now. And they are present. Ruka's words highlight the complexities of competing values, clashing cultures, opposing views of wealth and riches, of the push towards so-called progress at the expense of preservation of history and identity and land. These stories speak to the resilience of communities who have lost so much and yet have so much to give. Their voices, their sadness, their frustration, their unwillingness to give up, their resilience. It reminds us what it is to be human, facing the threat of loss 
and the fight for survival, a feeling many of us can relate to as we contemplate the future of our planet and our species. And while many stories like Ruka's reflect the lived realities of indigenous peoples all over the world, two things can be true at once. Corporate interests have created harm to indigenous communities. But we also know that many companies are striving to do better and are doing better. The change is slow, but it is happening. Hearing the experiences indigenous peoples have had with governments and companies left me wondering if reconciliation was even a possibility in Roca's mind. Here's what she had to say when I asked her how companies could rebuild trust with indigenous communities. Yeah, a company will never voluntarily do that. They will do that if they are forced to do that. Yeah, there is no such voluntary. Yeah, they will even call themselves ethical conduct. But there is no such things. Yeah, some of the company, they steal away our land in somewhere else. And they try to offset in somewhere else by giving out scholarships. But those are tokenisms just to cover up. And that's the practice of indigenous peoples with companies. One of the examples is because today we resist one of the biggest corporate groups in Indonesia, and it is for the uh, pulp and paper in North Sumatra. What they do is they join what they call philanthropy organizations. And, but what they do is they really destroy and take away the land of indigenous peoples in North Sumatra. But they call themselves philanthropies. How do they call themselves philanthropies? Because by taking away the land of indigenous peoples and by destroying our mother earth, they get benefit, they get profits. And a little bit of that profit, they put it in the what so-called philanthropic organizations and they give away the tokens in the form of scholarships and that's the practice of the companies in indonesia in anywhere else and i think this is just we we only need the common sense to see that this is the practice that is common everywhere as a business that helps companies manage their philanthropic contributions, this was difficult to digest. I could see how, from Ruka's standpoint, companies would be hard to trust. Instead of considering trust a binary equation, I thought a more nuanced question might help. Where is the give and take as companies try to balance business goals while trying to operate with an authentic commitment to justice, equity, respect? and sustainability. With a view into the earnest efforts of so many companies in the Benevity client community who are genuine in their pursuit of purpose, we have hope. And so does Ruka, despite sounding so steadfast in her distrust. She told us that across the Indonesian archipelago, the indigenous practice is to employ something called collective decision-making, or deliberative democracy. 
It's when decisions are made by people coming together through dialogue and exchanges. Communities come together in assembly to discuss topics they are all affected by. Sometimes it takes a day, sometimes a month, or longer. Rucha says that a decision can't be made unless everybody understands and all agreements and disagreements are spoken. Opposing opinions are always considered and given lots of time. Through this process, people get to understand the issues and how the consequences of decisions will impact everyone, now and well into the future. Collective decision-making processes in the non-Indigenous society is absolutely important. Why? Because we need to create, yeah, we need to create mechanisms where we can check and hold our government accountability. It's the check and balance mechanisms of the citizens with the one who holds the power and make decisions on behalf of us. So in the liberal democracy, we have that we have that, unfortunately, we have that distance, we have that gap with our what so-called representatives. But in indigenous community, we don't have that gap. We live with them and they are close to us. They are in that indigenous community and we maintain that deliberations process to check on them from time to time. Unfortunately, we are behind that. We are lacking of that contact in the liberal democracy. And that's one of the, what we call, deficits in the liberal democracy. That's why yeah, building a collective decision-making process in the cities, through the city halls meetings, through the collective action together, it's very important, especially at this time. That's my opinion. This was a ray of light in the broken trust that Ruka expressed earlier, and a solution for organizations and institutions to consider on how to act authentically in their operating and philanthropic practices. It's an engagement approach to decision-making and collective action, and it recognizes that important things take time. Time, a precious resource for all of us. But with time comes better solutions and ideas and hopefully, better outcomes. I can literally hear Ruka smiling as she talks about how long policy change can take, as if to acknowledge the challenges ahead. Ruka has been deep in this work for a long, long time. Her sharp sense of humor made me wonder what keeps her going, what keeps her smiling, despite all the hardship, and what gives her hope. She spoke of Indigenous youth coming home to reclaim their heritage and their culture, how they were unlearning and learning again and embracing their practices, creating a fertile ground for the future of their communities and culture. She also spoke of her brothers and sisters across the globe. According to Ruka, regular people, like you and I, in places far away from her and her people, hold a lot of power as consumers. As indigenous peoples, we have, we have paid our due we have done what we have to do, and we will continue to do it uh, from our sisters and brothers, especially in the uh, North uh, America, in, the, in Europe, in Canada. It is, it is the time to work together, yeah? to hold hands. What you can do is 
do your job uh, good and make sure that you don't contribute into further destructions of Mother Earth. Make sure you are kind to one another. Yeah? And for the consumers, for our sisters and brothers who consume the oil, who consume the gas, who consume the sugar or a coffee or tea, make sure that you know where do they come from. And make sure that you check if the company who sell it to you do not produce them by taking over our land, by using so much of the poisoning fertilizers and all this stuff that is not good for our health and make sure that they are nice to you and also nice to us indigenous peoples across the globe. That's my message because by doing that we can start to first heal our mother earth and ensuring that our generation to come will have at least better life than us. Thank you. Kuresumanga. Heal Mother Earth. Yes. And heal our relations with one another as indigenous and non-indigenous people. This was a deep and uncomfortable conversation especially as a company supporting corporate purpose and social impact work. But Ruka's words ring true in the bones. Despite all of our differences, we are brothers and sisters from the same family. Only by coming together in remembrance, trust, and collective action can we truly build a future that is equitable, just, and sustainable for all. While it certainly won't be an easy road, it's one that I will try to walk with the same empathy, passion, and commitment as Ruka. And we hope that you will join us on this journey too. After all, this is our only home. Speaking of Purpose is presented by Benevity a technology and engagement platform that helps bring the world's most iconic brands bring their purpose to life, based in Calgary, Canada. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope it provides you with a spark of inspiration to find your purpose and your way of leaving the world better than you found it. Today's episode was created by the passionate team here at Benevity. Special thanks to Ruka Sembolingi, Secretary General of Amman, Check our show notes for more information on some of the topics we discussed today. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the Sutina and the Stony Nakoda First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Benevity's headquarters is situated on land across from the Bow River, which has shaped this land and its people for generations. To listen to past episodes and get new episodes as soon as they're released, subscribe or follow Speaking of Purpose wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.